the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Uh, good yes, afternoon, indeed. Northern he California. Is, here to say good afternoon to you. Just about welcome five to minutes the after Thursday the hour edition of, 5 of Lifeline for the first day of February. Here we are, brand new company Mondays through Friday at this time. Busy we week, we do crazy week on Wall Street this week, life and world. And we've also had some interesting things going on. If you've been paying attention back in Washington D.C., yeah, I'm looking at my engineer Jarrell rolling his eyes. I I came to the conclusion, Jarrell, particularly as we've been talking about all this memo stuff, and there's the Democrat memo, and the Republican memo, and then the White House, and then there's the FBI, and all this maneuvering for position and so forth. And I thought, at the end of the day, you need a chalkboard, a bunch of post-it notes, yarn, and a felt-tip marker to keep track of it all. You know, it's going to look like a big, yep, that's it. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, we're going to try to make sense of what we can make sense of, and um, let's back up first to Tuesday. And... Donald Trump's first State of the Union address, which, of course, we aired here for you on KFAX. In that address, the president talked about his administration working toward building a, quote, safe, strong and proud America, saying that there was never a better time to start living the American dream. The president promoted the big Republican tax bill, saying it represents the biggest tax cuts in U.S. history. And he also, during that address, offered an open hand to Democrats, asking for Democrats and Republicans to work together, saying that he wants to get past complacency, saying complacency and concessions only invite aggression and provocation. All right, let's break it all down as we are joined by talk show host Joyce Cordy, Joyce's program. Reimagine America, heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. with a reprise broadcast at 3 p.m. right here on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. And Joyce, by the way, is also the founder and president of Reimagine America. Joyce, as always, great to have you on the program. Well, it's my pleasure. And you're right, it has been quite the day. It has been a, a day, quite frankly, where, as I said a moment ago, it, it, trying to keep track of all of what's going on, after a while, between FBI investigations and Russian probes and a smattering of different names in the FBI, some of which we recognize, other of which we don't, and then all of the political positioning going on, on, quite frankly, both sides of the aisle, all in an attempt to accomplish what I'm not sure here. Certainly, if the president was trying to strike a conciliatory note on Tuesday, by Thursday, much of that has just all kind of fallen to pieces, hasn't it? Uh, yes. Yes, it has. Um, I would love to be a fly on the wall at that Republican retreat right about now. It, 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 it appears it is, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to be blasphemous or or, or anything less than sympathetic to a young man who lost his life, but it is a train wreck based on, you know, the after, the evening papers. 
let's walk through some of this. I, I think kind of going backwards. First off, there there are overtones that seem to be eerily reminiscent of an event that some in this audience will remember, others will be simply too young to remember, that takes us back to some of the dark days of the Nixon administration. And we will recall the so-called Saturday Night Massacre when the then Attorney General was asked to dismiss um, Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox. He refused to do so. He resigned. The task was then assigned to the uh, deputy uh, AG, who in kind said, no, I'm not going to do that. He got fired, although it was represented by the president at the time that it was a, a, not a firing but a resignation, and therefore began that ugly period in American history, which eventually led to the president's resignation. I don't think that anything going on here, at least in the moment, rises to the occasion of any of that. But the degree of people and positions and posturing, and I'm not sure at one point, Joyce, whether I'm listening to a diatribe concerning what the Democrats did in relationship to servers and manipulation of the election and Hillary Clinton to what was done by WikiLeaks and the Russians. And then, of course, now we have this additional bit of mystery concerning the FISA memo and um, whether or not there has been manipulation of the data. It, It seems to me if there's a memo by the Republicans and a memo by the Democrats that's just two sides engaged in the typical political pandering. I mean, at this point, even once and if a memo is released by the White House, I don't know that there's going to be any substance in it that's going to be of any value. Will there? I don't think so. Because you will have, I mean, by the time that the director of the FBI issued the memo he issued yesterday saying there are you know, it, it, it is a grievous risk to national security uh, because of methods and sources. Plus, there are errors of, of omission and errors of commission. In other words, there are lies in the document. Uh, I think at that point, the bar gets higher. And, and we're not in a good place. We're not in a good place when we don't trust our own judicial uh, system and and the guys who have literally Mueller, Comey, McCabe, and um, and um, Ray are literally the guys who and and Strzok are literally the people who prevented another 9/11. So um, it is there there is fault on both sides, but there is an irony at the very center of this, Craig. You know, because these are counterintelligence people. These are not, you know, McCabe was the counterintelligence officer on the 9-11 case. He was the first interrogator um, at Gitmo. Um, You know, he was the guy who found the Boston bomber. I mean, this is not a a fellow who's inexperienced in counterterrorism, et cetera. So the funny part was they had this big discussion with, with Rand Paul on Morning Joe this morning, you may have seen it, in which they forgot the most basic thing, which is the State Department referred the uh, Clinton matter to the FBI to determine whether a crime had been committed. It wasn't the FBI going looking for, a, for an assignment that they didn't have enough work to do. All right. 
So that's the first half of it. And the second half of it is that the FBI did not introduce Russian meddling bots, other electronic types that, you know, and their job is cybersecurity against Russian interference. So had Trump embraced them, I, I get that he's offended by the dossier. I, I do get that. But had he embraced the findings of the of the several intelligence organizations in January, none of this would have happened. Well, and what I find ironic is, going back to some of the initial scuttlebutt here, which takes us clear back to October of a year ago, just a scant days before the election, all of this happened, and I think we need to be quick to remind people, all of this happened under the Obama FBI. And I think the part that I find troubling here, Joyce, is the, the muddying of the waters, because Yes, there are within the Department of Justice political appointments. The attorney general certainly is a political appointment. The director of the FBI is a political appointment. And yet we'd like to think and feel and see the Department of Justice acting nonpartisan, acting independent. It is working on behalf of the Constitution and the people of the United States, not necessarily on behalf of the executive branch, certainly not on behalf of any uh, political party, either in charge or not in charge. And so uh, what, what I find troubling with all of this is that now we have seen an aggressive attempt to try and impugn the character of everybody from Robert Mueller to current FBI Director Christopher Wray um, to the previous FBI Director James Comey. And then at the end of the day, you have to say, well, the, the, the casting this light of of question and doubt on everything that's going on within the Department of Justice then leads you to the conclusion, well, now if all of a sudden there's no sense of independence in this department, then, then what becomes of the function of this department as it relates to the the exercising of, 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 of the laws of the United States and making sure that they're properly carried out? Well... That takes us back even further than Nixon. That takes us all the way back to J. Edgar Hoover. Yes, it does. You know, and, and for those of you who are not old enough to remember or having have read about Hoover, Hoover was um, a dictator. Hoover was a man who kept records on uh, people like presidents who used blackmail in order to achieve his idea of what justice should be um, and who reigned in that, you know, and that was why they created the 10-year term, why when he died, they created the 10-year term for the uh, FBI director so that, one, um, he would not be beholden to an individual president, and two, he couldn't hold that president hostage. And so, um, you know, we're we're muddling. We are now at the point when you say it's my FBI. It's like you know, it's like it was when uh, FDR was president, and he did use the FBI to do domestic surveillance during in the period uh, between leading up to World War Two and. Uh, helped by Hoover's own initiatives during the period between World War One and World War Two, when there was a lot of socialist activity in, among immigrants in 
uh, New York. And so there is, I'm looking madly as I'm talking to you for the title of a book, and I'm not finding it right now, um, about Hoover's FBI. I, I was just, I'm a history major, and I was shocked by what he did. So we don't want to go back there. Um, and so we need to respect the fact that these people have worked tirelessly for nearly 20 years now to prevent another 9-11. And they, yes, I think they made mistakes, okay? But, but, but Comey was in a no-win situation, okay? They found what they found about Hillary's server, and, and and if he sent it to a grand jury, he was, you know, the grand jury will indict, you know, as you know, the theory, a grand jury will indict a fly on the wall. Um, you know, this was a presidential candidate who had been, uh, you know, 28 million people had voted for her. Well, and, you know, the, the, the utter irony here in all of this, going back to prior to the election, and the one question that I've never had anybody give me a solid answer on, and that is simply this. There have been disputes about whether or not uh, Hillary was actively involved in the manipulation of the primaries. There have been disputes about uh, whether or not the Russians were involved in releasing the emails to WikiLeaks, or should we just blame Julian Assange? Where does all of the, the blame for that lie? Uh, there have been comments about all of the Podesta emails. On and on, this has gone back and forth related to the FBI, the FBI's handling of things, the last-minute uh, comments made made by Comey, what happened with then-Attorney General uh, there on the tarmac with Bill Clinton. And yet, through it all, the one thing that has never happened, and the one thing that is seldom spoken of, is the fact that the DNC has never denied the authenticity of the emails. They've never denied what those emails revealed. Now, were there people that had an agenda that were motivated by partisan politics in the timing and releasing? Yeah, probably. But let's get back to the core issue here, the 550-pound elephant in the room, and that is at no time have they ever said what well, was all made up. It wasn't true. didn't do it. None of that's true. It was all made up. It was all a work of fiction. No, they've never once, up to and including John Podesta ever denied the authenticity of what's contained in the emails, the debate has been solely who released them, when they got released, why they got released. And at the end of the day, don't we come back full circle to if, if you want to say, well, and, and if this had an impact on the election, doesn't the American population want to know what's going on with people that would like to be running the country? Didn't the American people have the right to this information? That's the question that nobody seems to ever want to answer. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation, breaking down not only the, the current confusion over the, uh, the, the current, I don't know, is it, is it going to become a memo gate uh, this time between uh, Democrats and Republicans? I don't know, but there certainly seems to be an awful lot of uh, political um, uh, meandering about here. And then along with that, more of our breakdown of the backside of the president's first State of the Union address. Joyce Cordy with us, her program, Reimagine America, heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m with a reprise broadcast at 4 p.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Right now, we take a time out to get you the answer to the question about traffic right here on KFAX, and Michael Bennett gives us that look. Michael, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
And if mistakes were made and if individuals did something wrong, then it is our job as the legislative branch of government to conduct oversight over the executive branch if abuses were made. There's a House Speaker Paul Ryan defending the pending release of this controversial Republican memo on the Russia investigation that, of course, was spoken at the annual House and Senate GOP retreat in West Virginia today, calling, as he just said there, it's Congress's legitimate oversight of the intelligence community. Meanwhile, Ryan also dismissed Democratic calls to remove Republican Devin Nunez as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, calling it a political distraction. Some might argue a lot of this has been a major political distraction. We're visiting today with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is the founder and president of reimagineamerica.org and get lots of great information and insights on her website. Again, reimagineamerica.org. Her broadcast is heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and again at 3 p.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Joyce, uh, I don't want to spend too much more time on this, but at the end of the day, I guess one of the big questions that this is going to really drill down into um, is ultimately whether or not there was an attempt at obstruction of justice here. One of the things I found concerning is, well, the president was wanting to know whether or not individuals were on his team. I, I, I wonder why there are Democrats who find that disturbing, and yet when Eric Holder, then attorney general, said that uh, he was Obama's wingman, that nobody had a problem with that. I, I don't think that this necessarily rises to the occasion of some sort of, a, you know, a, a pledge of loyalty per se, but since it's appointed positions, I think it's probably a legitimate question for the president to ask, no? Um, there has been a tradition, and, and it was eroded in the Obama administration, of a clear separation between the Justice Department and the rest of the executive simply because we have a three-part system. We have the legislative, we have the executive, and we have the judicial branches of government. And so you want to believe that justice is blind. So I agree with you that I think Holder was was far too partisan uh, in that office and, and thus opened the door for the kind of activity that we are seeing currently, which isn't, isn't, you know, either an explanation or an excuse. You know, the way I would have handled it if I were Paul Ryan, um, a suggestion I intend to make to him next week when we're at the same meeting, um, is that I would have insisted that Nunez have um, Christopher Ray come and testify along with uh, Rosenstein about the questions that are that arise um, and, and are the source of the memo. Um, and it didn't have to be an open session, but it certainly should have been a conversation so that there was, uh, because we are talking about the foremost law enforcement organization in the country, the guys that we do depend on uh, day and night to keep us from having another 9-11, um, not to mention crime, you know, drugs and all kinds of other things, uh, and white-collar crime. But we, we do need, uh, it, it would have been much better if there could have been a, a hearing, it could have been a secret hearing, you don't have to invite us, right, uh, in which there was a consensus around the information. Now, 
I think that doesn't change the fact that that Miss Page and Mr. Strzok misbehaved, and there should be a penalty for that misbehavior. Uh, and that uh, Strzok reported to McCabe, McCabe should have found out about it sooner. And, you know, to the degree to which the FBI texts raise some serious questions. And again, as we discussed in the previous segment, this is kind of a mushy, muddy waters because some of these Department of Justice positions are appointments. And so, you know, at a level, think, well, if, I'm the, if I have appointed you to that position, uh, yeah, I kind of like to think that there's a little bit of sense of, of, of um, duty. Now, again, this is where all of a sudden it, it gets very difficult because even though it might be an executive branch appointment, we'd like to think of the Justice Department as almost being more on the judicial side in terms of how it how it operates, that it should do investigations justly and fairly, come to appropriate conclusions based not on uh, belief, but rather based on evidence, and then make recommendations of whether or not um, a case should be put forward for uh, prosecution or not. So again, it, it it's difficult here in terms of some of the language. And, you know, as we've learned in recent weeks, there does seem to be some suggestion that the president wanted Robert Mueller off the job. And yet, unlike the reference that I made earlier on at the top of the program tonight concerning Nixon and Archibald Cox, where Nixon went out and said, not only do I want him off, I'm kicking him off, and it's going to happen now. Uh, the president expressing an interest in that and it actually happening are still two different things, aren't they? Well, we've seen the consequences, you know. We have. I, I, I am sure that I'm sure that the president has been consoled by not just Don McCann, but Chris Christie. Uh, I'm sure has in private expressed strong in in in, in Christie terms uh, just how um, foolish that would be. You know, we need to let this thing play out. And we're going to make one more comment or two more comments. It's going to be one paragraph, um, and then we we got to talk about what what Trump did in in terms of this memo this week stepping on his state. State of the um, State of the Union message, um, and and the the thing the first thing to remember is, given the Hoover example, the ten year term of the um, FBI director was designed to make him apolitical or her apolitical and outside of the so called executive branch. They were intended it was intended to make that appointment confirmed by Congress independent of politics. All right, that's number one. And number two, um, Mr. Strzok and Ms. Page, or Mrs. Page, are both civil servants, so they get a whole lot more protection. Their little affair, and I'm sure that a lot of this texting was just pillow talk, so to speak, okay, in, in private industry, they would have been fired long ago for the workplace disruption that that affair caused. But they're civil servants. And at the end of the day, that that's that makes, again, part of this a little bit more 
challenging because, you know, this is, again, the proverbial onion. You just keep peeling back more and more layers. And the irony is that this investigation is not over with yet. The proverbial fat lady has not yet sung. And we don't know, uh, especially, and, and you made reference to all of this news, kind of stepping on the president's first shot at the State of the Union address on Tuesday. Uh, this is also stepping on some other areas that can potentially be very problematic for Republicans, and that is that we are now 10 months away from the midterm elections, and a lot of this, as it continues to sort of work its way out, uh, my goodness, if if revelations start coming forward in the next several months uh, of, of more, you know, Again, evidence of, of potential obstruction of justice in relationship to the Russia probe, uh, this could have a deleterious impact on the midterm elections. We'll talk about that and the State of the Union address. More of our conversation with the president of Reimagine America and host of Reimagine America heard on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer, our sister station. We invite you to tune in for that and check out Joyce's website where she offers uh, political insights, commentary, and uh, not just that, but also, most importantly, a lot of solid solutions. You can find all that information available at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Let's get a look at traffic. We'll come back to more of our visit with Joyce Cordy right after this. And this, of course, is a look at your Thursday ride home with Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our visit with Joyce Cordy, founder and president of Reimagine America. Information again on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Well, uh, certainly while here by Thursday, much attention focused on uh, memo wars in Washington, D.C., there's a couple of other points that we need to be talking about. One is that we are now, once again, just a week away from another potential government shutdown. The government will run out of money on the 8th of February. February and more finagling, no doubt, related to that, you'd, you'd think maybe they'd just go out there and do their job and create a budget and get the thing passed and put forward a year at a time. I mean, can you imagine if you tried to manage your household budget by these resets every few months and just sort of kicking the can down the road? Ouch. Unbelievable. So that as we talk about moving forward. However, listening to the State of the Union address on Tuesday, the president's first such address. I mean, typically those kind of lay out the uh, the president's feelings as to where we've been over the course of the last 12 months. But most importantly and central to the message is laying a foundation for a vision of the future. This address, though, Joyce Cordy seemed to spend an awful lot of time, at least from my perspective, uh, focusing on the past. And while there was a nod given to things like uh, infrastructure investment and trying to address the issue of of immigration reform, it, it seemed to be really short on a lot of concrete specifics. How did you feel about the address? Same way. Um, I I felt like, um, you know, one, the president does have a bad habit of taking credit for things that aren't really his accomplishment. Uh, of course, that, that seems to be <laughs> seems to be common with people that that occupy that office. <laughs> kind of, you know, I mean, it's, you have to give the speech every year, and, and you know, things like the economy don't start from zero 
when you change presidents. So when you are in the sixth or seventh year of a recovery from the catastrophe of 2008, um, then you you know you're going to see some degree of job growth, but you're also going to you know there were a, there was a lot of self congratulation. If I were the president, I would applaud myself less because more people would have stayed for the conclusion of the speech had not run an hour and twenty minutes. Yeah, I, I concur on that. And, and the other thing, too, in terms of walking away, I mean, there there were some points that there was, uh, you know, applause on both sides. Uh, I, I think, though, on some of the bigger points in relationship to uh, this issue of immigration, there certainly wasn't much excitement on the Democrat side of the aisle. And I and I found that the, the, the president's comment about this matter of compromise a, a little bit troubling. He, he spoke to the challenge of complacency and concessions as only inviting aggression and provocation. But at the end of the day, from a political standpoint, isn't the matter of giving concessions to kind of work together toward the common good, the goal in the first place? Yes. You know, it's what I did in, in 30 years in corporate America, which is to find, you know, to do what he did, you, you create a straw man, and then, as he did with the immigration program, and then you let everybody have their shot at it. And and if you're listening instead of talking, out of that conversation, um, I don't know that you need a, a African talking stick, but you know, I, I think Susan Collins is onto something. You got to stop and listen to what the other guy is saying, and out of that, you will find nuggets of consensus, and that's how you start to build bipartisan solutions. Now, I didn't think the Democrats covered themselves in glory, um, sitting there on their hands, um, unable to even uh, applaud a line as cliche as the the um, state of the union is strong. Um, you know, and and I, I I have to say when when Bernie Sanders tweets out to Nancy Pelosi, you need to smile more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was kind of kind of said it all. I mean, she looked. Somebody said she looked constipated. She she definitely looked as though she was in serious pain. There there were few that were no doubt uh, you know had had been um, sucking on uh, lemons prior to uh, prior to the speech. There's no doubt about that. And you know, and the hour and twenty minutes that it ran uh, is a little bit excessive. There were you know every speech has its applause points and all of that. It, it seemed to me that the points could have been made in less time. But the bigger issue I think is you know we we applaud the president on wanting to address infrastructure. I think I read the other day, is there something like 38,000 or was it 58,000 bridges across America, uh, America's roads, freeways, and and rivers that are in serious need of repair? I mean, not that they're going to fail tomorrow, but they're heading in that direction. And I think all of us that drive over potholes can agree uh, we have neglected American infrastructure for far too long. And the idea of putting another $1.5 billion or trillion dollars into it, I think we applaud. The problem is the one question 
question that did not get answered, and that is where is the money going to come from? And and I have to wonder, you know, with, with the tax cutting that took place uh, and the president making much hay about that, although I don't know that it necessarily qualifies uh, as the greatest reform in American history, uh, but that said, the one thing that seems to be missing from all of this is what's happened to Republican Party uh, sense of um, fiduciary responsibility and accountability and frugalness. Uh, none of that seems to be at play anymore. I mean, there were mo- moments in terms of, of spending money that it was hard to tell whether I was listening to a Democrat president or a Republican one. You're absolutely right. I mean, that is one of the the issues that was debated in the um, in the seventeen in the primary with seventeen Republicans is is Donald Trump really a Republican? So what I was I you know me you know we what we talk often um, rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure is the shot in the arm that would make this economy just take off. And there is, according to the civil engineering folks, about $4 trillion in necessary investment. And so I, you know, I thought that was a great, I agree with him about the fact that it takes 10 years to permit something if there's an old theory from in, in technology that says there is the law of threes. Three days, uh, that's a bug, go fix it. Three, we, uh, three years, don't start because the um, the end you're seeking will be will be in a different place when you finish. So therefore, the solution will never work. Or three months, go do it. Okay. Well, you can't really build a road in three months. But ten years and twenty two feet of flowchart to permit a highway, even with all the need for environmental protections, et cetera, and thinking about zoning and so forth, is way too much. So. The places I agree with him are, yes, it, it should, in fact, it, the average for permitting a road is three to six years. That's too long by twice. And a million, a, a trillion and a half dollars put into an infrastructure bank would create about five or six trillion dollars in economic activity in the United States over a decade if well managed. And too bad, and you've, you've, you've shared this insight with me, too bad a lot of that repatriated money and some of it that still has yet to be brought to American shores could not be harnessed to make a lot of this happen because, you know, $1.5 trillion, that's, that's a significant amount of money, but you've got to get the money flowing. And uh, to your point on timing, I mean, and we all complain about this. They're busy doing an expansion on 880 or 101, and by the time they get finished, they say, well, that's nice. Now we need another lane. Why didn't you put two lanes in when you planned for this 10 years ago? It, 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 it seems to be that vicious cycle. Why didn't you plan in a more cohesive way? Why didn't you think about urban planning as an over, you know, as an as a overarching theme and say, okay, well, we're going to build housing here, and we're going to build industry there, and we're going to create some kind of rapid transit, et cetera. All of this stuff, and then they say, well, why don't we raise the gas tax? Well, we raised the gas tax in California already, and we're going to raise it some more under the Clean Air Act here in California. 
uh, we're talking about 70 cents a gallon, so how much more do you want to add to the federal? And and so that ignores the fact. And, and they keep saying, well, the highway trust fund is getting smaller. Well, yeah, you mandated all this fuel efficiency, and your source of, of income is a tax per gallon. So, yes, if you have more gallons of fuel, uh, fewer gallons of fuel sold, you're going to have less revenue. Well, and not only that, but then I look at the investment in things like bike lanes and all of that. And, and I'm not knocking people. If you want to ride a bicycle to work, uh, congratulations. But the expenditure of restriping and recurbing all of these roads to put bicycle lanes in, ostensibly with the idea that people will get out of their gas-guzzling uh, dinosaur-eating cars and will get onto a bicycle and go from San Francisco to San Jose on a bike, okay, uh, and there's not a bit of tax revenue coming in to support any of that because bicyclists, of course, contribute not one dime through road taxes to build any of that infrastructure. It's a lot of short-sightedness. Attempting to try and cure that short-sightedness, not only by pointing it out, but then offering practical solutions. Well, that's what Joyce Cordy does on her program every week. You can check her out Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. or at 3 p.m. Details again on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Joyce Cordy's program, Reimagine America, Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Joyce, thanks so much for being with us. We are going to get a look at traffic right now. A little pressed for time here. So let's see what's going on with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Hey, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The 24th annual Silicon Valley Prayer Breakfast, I think no doubt the largest in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, the 24th such one is coming up in March, on Friday, March the 23rd, a couple of great keynote speakers, and here to tell us all about it is the chairman of the Silicon Valley Prayer Breakfast, author of the bestseller, Finding God in Silicon Valley, Skip Vaccarello. Skip, great to have you on the program. Well, Craig, thank you so much for having me. Privileged you always have a, a banner event with a lot of very fascinating and often a very well-known keynote speakers. I recall one of the ones that I went to here not that long ago uh, featured Condoleezza Rice. It's always a who's who. And, and, of course, at the end of the day, very compelling content. One of the beautiful things I love about the approach of your organization to this prayer breakfast is it's one that, that definitely has an evangelical flavor to it and yet is done in such a fashion that you can pretty much feel comfortable bringing friends, business associates, and and folks that maybe are not necessarily believers to an event like this. They'll feel quite comfortable and walk out with a really good message. That's right. That, that's exactly right, Craig. That is the purpose of the event. Um, it really gives believers an opportunity to invite their friends who may you know not be yet followers of Christ. People that are curious about faith and very comfortable setting to come uh, to come to. It's uh, we make people it is just very comfortable. There is no pressure. They sit back and listen to terrific speakers. Um, and you know it's God people can relate to how God has touched someone's life. Uh, and that's what they'll hear. They'll hear from our two speakers this year, Justin Dillon and Promote Hawk, how God has worked through their lives through both good times and challenging times as well. 
Where do you go to source a lot of these speakers? Because there are some folks that are very high within the business world and even within the government world that we don't always necessarily know that they're believers and then suddenly go to an event like this and go, oh, my goodness, I had no idea. <laughs> well, good point. You know, it's just having been around here for a while and and I just, you know, I run across people, I get people introduce me to other people. And so, you know, it's, it is interesting that you know most people think of the Bay Area and Silicon Valley as a uh, as a place far from God, uh, and, and, and statistically, in many ways, it is. Uh, but um, but realistically, there are many committed followers of Christ and followers of Christ in very high places as well. Um, so that's what we we're able to to find those people um, to attract them to speak at the event. Uh, and we find that it's just uh, it's just inspiring uh, for people. It helps them think about about uh, who God is when they when they hear someone that they may look up to who just has a great story about how God's worked in their lives. Uh, and, and our hope is very simple. We just want to open up conversations about faith, and we think the best way to do that is to is to come and listen to stories of people who are committed believers. Now, we're mentioning this here in the first part of February um, because we want to give our listeners an opportunity to begin thinking and praying about those key individuals that you would like to share with, people that you have been praying for, people that you believe God has put on your heart to engage in active outreach with and can see this upcoming prayer breakfast again Friday, March the 23rd as a great opportunity, a great tool to do just that. Um, let me mention a couple of things. First, Skip, for folks that want to begin ordering tickets, is it too early to do that? Oh, not at all. In, in, in fact, we're, um, we've just started uh, promoting the event through email, and we probably have somewhere in the vicinity of 500 people that have signed up, uh, and the capacity is 900. So if your listeners are interested, uh, I would urge them to uh, to sign up uh, quickly, uh, or that is over the next uh, over the next week or two. Um, the capacity is 900, and it's just it's so incredible to, to be in, in a room uh, at seven o'clock in the morning that you have 900 people there listening to stories about God. And our our uh, goal is that half of the people that are there are people that are not yet followers of Christ. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, this is probably the biggest event in the San Francisco um, Bay Area, you know, that, that is really run as an outreach of this type. So, yes, I urge your listeners to, to pray about people that they may want to invite to the event. That'll be a very easy, comfortable setting for those people. And, and our hope, as I said, is just simply to, to, um, to allow those people that have invited guests to open up a conversation about faith with them. And as Skip mentioned, with nearly half of the tickets already committed, uh, time is of the essence. So don't laugh when I say it's coming up on Friday, March the 23rd, but it is, and you need to be thinking and acting and doing right now. You can get information by going to SVPB, think Silicon Valley Prayer Breakfast, get the letters SVPB.net to get more information and order tickets. I'll also mention that an undertaking of this sort is not inexpensive by any means, and so if folks maybe from their business would like to either maybe come in as a table host or as a corporate sponsor. Are there still opportunities available there as well, Skip? Oh, absolutely. Yes, we you know, we welcome corporate sponsorship or, or people to give donations. There are various levels because you're right. 
Craig, it's, it's, it's a fairly expensive event to put on. Um, so those donations help defray the costs. So if, uh, if someone wanted a, a table, a table of 10, it's $400, but our cost is, uh, is quite a bit more than that uh, to put on the event. And one other thing I'd, li- I'd say, you know, sometimes people think it's a, sort of a daunting task to have uh, to invite, you know, eight, nine people or so that are not yet believers. But have you have your um, listeners think about this. Most people of faith are in a small group. You might not challenge your small group members to invite one other person to come to it. So you could fill up the table with your uh, small group members and, and then people are their friends. And let me underscore something that you said, Skip, because I think it's critically important, and that is that when we think about marketplace evangelism and our sphere of influence, you know, oftentimes we hear, oh, prayer breakfast, and our minds immediately goes to, well, you know, the guy that sits in the pew behind me at church or my Bible study partner. There's nothing wrong with that, but I think the broader sense of seeing this as an outreach opportunity is something that I want to plant in your mind because, as I mentioned at the onset, there's always high profile profile, well-known names. Many of these people come from the world of business or politics. They are trendsetters. They are market leaders. They're critical decision makers. And so there's several takeaways here. Number one, to get a chance to hear from very successful people how they've done it, the role that faith has played in their life, in their role in business. And so when you think about who to invite to something like this, think beyond the, the normal quick list top of mind and begin thinking about key people. It might be a client. It might be a co-worker. It might be a vendor, um, it, somebody that you've worked with and have been sharing with uh, down through the years that maybe now is at a place where something like this uh, could really speak to their heart. Pray, too, about maybe the individual that's going through some difficult times. You've heard about a co-worker that's uh, facing a marital problems, somebody else that's dealing with a health challenge, cancer diagnosis, or something of that sort, who could really benefit from something like this. And what's beautiful about it is it's in a non-threatening atmosphere. I hear all the time, well, it's hard for me to invite people to church because folks come in, they've maybe uh, had an experience years ago, and they feel uncomfortable. But here, it's a neutral setting at a hotel, enjoying a nice meal, like-minded folks. It's very comfortable. And so um, real ministry can take place because oftentimes uh, in that neutral setting, the the so-called guard is down. So again, uh, to encourage you to get information about becoming either a, a corporate sponsor, a table host, or just simply to invite uh, friends individually, details available on the web for the upcoming 24th annual Silicon Valley Prayer Breakfast. The date is Friday, March the 23rd. It'll be taking place once again at the Hyatt Regency. That's the Great America Parkway in Santa Clara. And details and tickets available on the web at SVPB, thanks Silicon Valley Prayer Breakfast, svpb.net. Skip Vaccarello, thanks so much, Skip, for being with us tonight. Craig, thank you so much. Appreciate it, and I hope to see uh, many of your listeners there. We'll look forward to it. Take care now. There is Skip Vaccarello, the chairman of the annual Silicon Valley Prayer Breakfast. Again, details on the web at svpb.net. All right, details on traffic, that's right here. We're going to go for it with Michael Bennett's got the latest for you from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael, what's going on out there?
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.